0: The head of the Iranian uh, atomic energy organization announced today that they will join the nuclear club within a month. So I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's uh, in response to what's going on in Washington, but it's something, something to keep an eye on. It's interesting. A, what do you say to the The Iranians announced. it. The head of the Iranian atomic uh, organization, uh, uh, the head of Iran's atomic energy organization, announced today that they'll join the new, the world nuclear club within a month, and he inferred that they'll have uh, weapons because no country would think about attacking Iran after Iran's membership in the club. It's a direct quote. So, interesting, as they say. Um, And one other announcement, if people can please put on their calendar, I urge you to come. Uh, Professor Ashra Susser will be speaking on the 22nd of April at 4.15. And we're going to have a reception, and it's the uh, annual Professor William Prusoff Lecture. Professor Prusoff was actually one of the first uh, financial backers of the notion of ESA. And he's a professor at he's a professor of pharmacology and created the first generation of antiviral medication. And he's a very, he's not just because he helped you, but he's a very special, uh, humble uh, man. And uh, it would be nice if people come out to support the event. Uh, And uh, Professor Prussoff and Professor Susser will be given the annual prize for the Prussoff lecture. Okay, so today we're grateful and honored that uh, Kenneth Stern is with us. Today Kenneth Stern will be speaking about the new interdisciplinary field of hate studies and its relevance to understanding and combating anti-Semitism. Uh, Ken Stern is the Director of Anti-Semitism and Extremism at the American Jewish Committee. He is an attorney by training and he's also a lecturer at colleges and universities across the country. And he is a frequent contributor and uh, public media consultant for places such as Face the Nation, Crossfire, Nightline, Eightline, Good Morning America, and other major news agencies, including the NPR. He's written New York. He's written op-ed pieces in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times. And he's a board member of uh, Gonzaga University and their Institute for Action Against Hate. Ken has been a, a, uh, <coughs> one of the organizers and movers of this sort of notion of hate studies, which I'm sure you'll, you'll speak on, which is a very important contribution uh, and certainly central to some of the issues that we discussed here at ESA. Um, while at AJC, he served as an expert uh, specialist in a parliamentarian working group on policing and, and uh, prosecution. At, um, Policing prosecution at the London Conference on <coughs> Combating Anti Semitism. He's testified recently in, at the Canadian Parliament in their investigation into issues of uh, anti Semitism. In 1997, he served as an invited presenter to the White House Conference on Hate Crimes, and he helped to organize and promote a team of law enforcement experts now working for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe to train police trainers in European countries on how to investigate and catalog hate crimes. This is very important uh, work. Um, And the list of Ken's accomplishments goes on and on including all sorts of distinguished awards and and honors and he's loyally published he's author of uh, (laughs) many books and (laughs) and articles and we're honored that you're here.
1: Thanks, Charles. Uh, take, you know, the things you stay in a place for 20 years, and it looks like you actually accomplished something. But, um, anyway, it's a pleasure to, to be here and to spend time with you. I, I'm really I'm a great fan of what Charles has been able to accomplish here, so I'm, I'm really glad to be able to come up and, and speak with you and uh, to share some, some thoughts on common concerns. Um, let me let me tell you about how hate studies actually came together. It's a sort of an interesting story uh, because it does tie in directly with dealing with anti-Semitism in an important way. There, I don't know if you folks remember, but back in the late '70s, there was a compound established in uh, Northern Idaho, uh, the Aryan Nations compound, which was, had a lot of of uh, problems associated with a lot of, of dangerous things that came out of it. But one of the things that happened when it started um, really organizing the community there was that there was a parish priest, a guy by the name of Bill Wassman, who was very upset with the idea of what the Aryan Nations folks were doing. And Bill, for all his efforts in trying to kind of organize people to push back against the white supremacists in the community, um, had his house firebombed by these guys. And Bill was the type of guy that just, you know, got him angry. So it took him about two years and he put together, he left the priesthood and he put together this incredible organization, um, which unfortunately no longer exists, but for about 10, 15 years, it really was a model of how to deal with groups like this. It was called, it's a horrible name, the Great Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment. And what Bill did is he put together uh, groups like AJC and ADL and labor uh, representatives and, and law enforcement officials and others to try to figure out how do you push back against the mainstreaming of hatred, how do you marginalize the white supremacists, how do you push back against the anti ballot initiatives that are coming up in the Northwest. And get did it regionally from Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho and then expanded into, to Colorado. Um, and so Bill's conference is one I would always go to and I would participate in. And one year, he asked me to give a keynote. And I said, sure, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, well, challenge us to do something. And my response was, well, from the group guys that I hold up to model every place else when they talk about how do you organize against these groups in the community. Um, but it got me to thinking. And what it, what it caused me to concentrate on was that everybody else who was going to Bill's meetings was coming? were coming because of what they were doing for their day jobs. And certainly, for me, people from the churches, people from the police departments, uh, people from the labor movement had their own you know concerns as well. They were all coming associated with what they were doing. The academics that came, and there were a number of them, really were coming as individuals because they cared, but not as something really directly related to to their uh, from the day jobs, and so what transpired in that keynote was that I, I really challenged the academics in the community to try to put something together that would actually help uh, the rest of us that are working day to day on these issues. Because if you think about it, um, you know, hatred has been something that's been around forever. Um, Anti-Semitism is an important subcomponent of it, but it is a subcomponent of it, and. That a lot of what people did in response to it, whether it was organizing us in area of nations in the panhandle of Idaho, or what governments do, or what nonprofits do, that a lot of it is, is being done by the seat of pants and what we think works. And there's very little um, comprehensive uh, intellectual approaches to this that give us testable theories of what works and what doesn't work and why and how do we tweak it. And so what happened was that it took a number of, of uh, steps There's some of the institutions wanted to pursue, it, but couldn't bring any money. At Gonzaga University, they, it just timing worked out well. They had a conference there that worked with Morris Dees and I. Were, were keynoting. Uh, Bill was there, and they had an attack on some black law students there, so they wanted to do something. That was you know, over a decade ago, um, and we built together an institution there that, that looks at this issue of hatred and how do we understand it. And the basic, you know, thought about it in terms of the academic community is, look, hatred is something that's normative, it's been around, it's a problem for human beings as long as there have been human beings, regardless of when, regardless of where, regardless of the economic or political system, hatred is something that impacts human beings. And when we have something that's a a constant that impacts human beings, we tend to look at it in terms of answers from an interdisciplinary perspective. For example, people get sex with medicine that's more than a combination of parts of biology and chemistry and other related fields, or people need structures for you know for living and for work. So the field of architecture is more than the parts of uh, you know physics and art and math and other things. We pull it together because there's a need to address a problem. And we don't need do things the They're very important things in subcomponents of many academic fields, there's nothing that sort of pulls it all together to look at it holistically. And that was the challenge of what we wanted to, to do to, to uh, try to understand. So in trying to figure out how this should come about, what we should do about it, we started looking at issues of hatred and you know what what is hatred? Um, and some of the social scientists we went to basically came to the conclusion that there was no common definition. For it, or for prejudice and stereotyping, either which are different but related concepts, and that there you know were things that were uh, attitudinal, things that were behavioral, there were things that were passive, there were things that were active, um, and how do, how do we identify what we need to look at? So at a conference in 2004, we basically came up with an understanding of what this field should see itself as doing. And the field of hate studies is defined as inquiries into the human capacity to define and then dehumanize and quote, other, and the processes that inform and give expression to or could curtail, control, or combat that capacity. With um, that as sort of the goal plus of what it is we wanted to look at, there were some things that we felt confident that we could say about hatred before beginning. One is that it's a, again, it's a normative, Part of the human experience. There's an AJC poster that we use sometimes after a hate crime that's cuddly, you know, little babies in diapers of different skin colors, and the tagline the is, No one is born hating. And I really test that poster because I think it sends the wrong message. So I think hatred is a normative part of who we are. We may need some help figuring out who to hate. Um, but, you know, just like people aren't born speaking either, and at certain point, you're expecting to develop that capacity. I think we're all hardwired in terms of hatred. Whether we give expression to it, how strong, how strongly it affects us, you know, that, that those are things that we can discuss. but we've discussed. Uh, I think the historical record is pretty compelling because <coughs> to me that how we deal with people that we define as others um, has not been a good track record. Second thing that we feel pretty comfortable about is that frequently hate of others is expressed as love of self. And if you, anybody who wants to spend the time looking at the writings of David Duke or Louis Farrakhan or others, can find ways of saying, no, you know, I don't really hate these folks, I just love you know, black folk, white folk, whatever. Um, but it's a strong tendency in a lot of the political expressions of people to justify it as, as loving self. Um, one of my favorites, that's sort of a tangent of this, is uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini. He gave a quote that he was actually, it was love of the other that, that really justified his, his hatred. It said, if an infidel is allowed to pursue his nefarious role as a corrupter on Earth until the end of his life, his moral sufferings will go on growing. If we kill him, and we thus prevent the infidel from per- perpetuating his misdeeds, his death will be to his benefit. So yeah, thanks a lot. Right. Um, Anyway, so there are a bunch of questions that we started looking at when we put this together. And I'm just going to give you give some, and we we'll can discuss any of this later if you want, but um, where does hate in its various manifestations, racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, et cetera, where, where does it come from? What motivates individual hate? Do we need to hate? And if so, why? How exactly do images of life and death, which if you read a lot of the, the of people talking Expressions of hatred, life and death images, seem to permeate that a lot. Um, do we need to feel strong emotions such as hatred to feel alive? Is fear of death of the group identity an extension of, of the self or something else? How do hateful ideologies skew our vision so that dangers to our existence are seen in every aspect of human life? And this is an important, you know, uh, observation that i will talk about a little bit later too. That people become supercharged in their identity and just get to the point where they see uh, further proof of the hatred that gives them a, a world view in all aspects of their life, in religion and culture and social things and so forth. When and how different and sometimes competing hateful ideologies find common cause, you will find, for example, some black supremacists, some white supremacists find common cause around things like. Uh, Holocaust denial, example. Um, what role does self-esteem, self-esteem play in all of this? Is there a correlation between how much we hate the other and how strongly we feel connected to or good about our own group? If bigotry has to do with identities and when, how, if, how it's formed, influenced, and changed. And if it can't, if, if it can't be uh, eradicated, how can we manage? What's the role of education in the to And I'll talk more about that a little bit later. What should government and social change agents, groups like AJC, the NAACP, and others, groups like uh, Lisa, do? Uh, why are some differences more important for defining others, say skin color or eye versus eye color, in some places, but in other places where those differences don't exist, others are found to replace them some studies that show uh, that in, in Cyprus, where you really couldn't tell by just the, the external things between Greek and, and Turkish uh, Cypriots, the tell difference by brands cigarettes people smoke. You know, so there are other things to use to differentiate. and create this view of other. What's the role of dehumanization in all this dehumanization? Why are conspiracy theories so prevalent in ideology? If you draw a graph between the human thirst for universi- universality on one hand and tribalism on the other, how does hatred play out <coughs> in that field? What motivates group hate? What makes it stronger? What makes it weaker? What's the role of stress, of fear, of envy, of race, of power, of land, of economics, <coughs> you know, of visions of sovereignty, of religion, of memory? How do individual pathologies, group pathologies, political ideologies, ideologies, mesh in all this? What's the role of rage, biology, of sex? When and why do people act differently than they feel about issues of hatred? There are some studies, social psychology studies, that shows that uh, somebody who's a restaurant owner said they wouldn't serve Chinese people back in in the 50s or 60s, but they did. People that have black friends at work but don't invite them home. Or people that were when David Duke was running said they wouldn't vote for him but actually ended up voting for him. Is hate ever a good thing? And you can make the argument that it might, you know, work of World War II, you know, there's certainly hatred Germany on the American shore. I would say that's probably a good thing. Um what is global politics? How do concepts of nationalism and patriotism fit in? I and mean, they there there are whole slew I mean, of endless questions of how we look at hatred and the roles of different aspects of society. Uh, just to, to pick out one, you know, uh, Charles and I were talking a little bit before about the issue of uh, law and different countries that criminalize aspects of hate, such as Holocaust denial. Um, on one hand, you could argue that sets a normative sort of boundary of what's acceptable. On the other, you could argue that what it does is it, it actually disempowers the ability to combat hatred because what it does is it says, we're going to prosecute something. And therefore, um, and the, the cases have shown that there's very little way of prosecution that take forever. Then you have political leadership that's disempowered from speaking out because it says um, you know that there's a legal process. So how do governments, what's the best way for governments to deal with this? Um, Are there ways that governments haven't thought about taking I mean, Look at the point of, if you're going to build something in a city, um, you have to have an environmental impact statement in terms of what it's going to do the land, the air, the water, and so forth. But there's no sort of overarching mechanism to say, if we're going to build something, a park or something else, is there something that we can do to deal with communities that may not... Uh, have connections with each other, that may have stereotypes about each other, to be able to bring them in a way that hasn't been done before. Um, I haven't seen any quantification of government or elsewhere in terms of what hate costs. If you add up that figure, and I'm not not an economist, I don't know how you compute it, but I would think if you did add up the cost of hatred, it would be astronomical. So part of the problem thinking through all these questions and there are many others I can lay out for you too, is we tend to think <coughs> in the academic community in very siloed ways. And I think in society as well. If we see it as a medical disorder, then you know psychology and psychiatry are the cures of economics of the problem and we wait for the next upcycle. If it's a political event, we wait for some political change. You know, if it's a problem with the Aryan Nations folks who call the FBI, you know, if you see it as an educational problem, then you look at education as the, the total answer. If you see the, in, the problem is on an individual level, again, you look at psychology as the, the academic field, if you see it as a group phenomenon, then you look at the sociology of it, if you see it issue, you look at the, you know, you the anthropologist, if you see it as a political problem, you call them the political scientist, if you see it as a moral issue, you call them the philosophers. But very few academics in these different fields are looking at this all together. It's all very, very siloed. Um, and that's, that is a prescription for disaster if you're looking for testable theories about how you should approach all forms of hatred, including obviously anti Semitism. Um, so, what we did, give a little taste of it, in 2004 at Gonzaga, is we pull together academics from different fields and experts on anti-Semitism and racism and so forth as well, and we said, okay, so if you're going to build an interdisciplinary approach to give us these testable models, what do the different academics uh, silos, what do they have to offer for this? How do they work? Them? What, would the, what component parts of this larger picture would they contribute? And just to give you, you know, a few, um, history was where really we started with. Um, and that, for us, was given the overarching reference of how hatred has worked throughout history, throughout time. Um, it helped understand the triggers of what events and, and uh, parameters can um, be a catalyst for or uh, help define the launching of, of a the spike in hatred, uh, or the acceptance of hatred, the normalization of hatred. You know, the, the um, collapse of the peace process back in you know, the early 2000s was a precipitating excuse or event for a lot of attacks on Jews, for example, in, in Europe. Um, and so how do you look at historical events and understand them? History is also used to look at how uh, references to historical memory are used to promote hatred. And uh, again, Holocaust denial is a prime example for the distorting of, of history. But you have other examples as well of how history is taken uh, out of context and used to give an ideological boost to the promotion of hatred. So, you know, there's a monument, uh, uh, a treasure trove of information there. Psychology, Sebastian, what makes some um, you think see hatred as a normative aspect. What makes some develop hateful attitudes and not others? What are the differences? Um, you have evolutionary psychology that basically says that everybody um, can do horrible things, not only hateful, you know, express hatred, but actually do things that are horrible based on their hateful um, views in the right circumstances. Um, but how do you understand those things that, that motivate people, that you know, make them altruistic, make them giving to hatred, and so forth? Um, one of the, the more interesting debates I had, you mentioned about NPR years ago, um, right after the Oklahoma City bombing, I was on a NPR show with a guy named Jim Coates, who was a uh, reporter for the Chicago Tribune, who wrote this book about the skinhead. And he wrote about it in an effort to shoot people away from, from this type of stuff. And it was one of for the books. And Jim was was horrified that one he wrote to say as a warning, he took it as a bible. And so on the show, we basically agreed about everything about the militia movement at the time, this is like 96. And one difference that we had was he was describing the militia movement as the sort of the, the kids that were. Not successful at alcohol problems came from broken homes, and what happened with this type of stuff. And I was say, no, no, what we're seeing, we have seen those folks too, but we're seeing some businessmen, some communities, some others that were, you know, sucked in as well. And you know, we were, we were both right in the sense that um, what you had in a, in a movement, you had people brought in um, where they, you know, were brought in on sort of mainstreaming issues, and they became animated with a lot of the conspiracy theories, and so forth, and then you had the ones that decided to go out and act on it, rather than just to support the movement, which were also you know, quite critical to the success of the militia movement at the time. And you had the ones that went out and actually did the, you know, the deeds. So you had, in psychology, not just you know, do you hate or do you not hate it, but different types of activities and, and ways that people felt about the ideology that was motivating. And a lot of it had to do with, with identity, I mean, we tend to think sometimes that people have these sort of narrow um, identities, but identity is a very multifaceted thing. I mean, I, I'm an American, I'm a Jew, I'm a man, I'm a husband, I'm an author, I'm a lawyer, I'm a father, I'm a fisherman, you know, a lot of different things. Um, and there are times where some things get, you know, more play than others. I mean, I, I, my daughter still remembers when. This is a long time ago. She was very little when the Knicks were actually winning games. And there's a playoff game in the late 90s, and I forgot she was on my lap. You know, somebody, I jumped up, you know, cheered for something, and she went flying. You know, it's happened once, well, it happened twice, actually. <laughs> but for that moment, my identity, identity as a Knick fan was more than my identity as a father, or so my, my daughter would allege. Um, you know, how do people get to the point where their identity gets so supercharged? that they see themselves, you know, just, they're living every breath for this particular vision that's motivated by this hatred. There's a lot in psychology that tell us. Social psychology, you know, there's a ton of work going back to Moderno, um, Samuel Milgram, um, you know, a lot of different, different uh, studies show us a lot of really, you know, interesting things about how symbols are important um in terms of the you know, the whole um, uh, sort of manifestation of hatred and how it impacts people you when know, you look at the history of anti-Semitism, the swastika and Nazi Germany or Confederate flags in the south, the KKK crosses, or the dressing styles of contemporary skinheads and you not just be, you know, things that are inanimate objects too. And one of the things that <laughs> that um, impressed me when I moved back to New York from Oregon back in the 80s was when Ed Koch was running for a return as mayor and talked about, you know, Jesse Jackson at first hometown comment and he was saying that Jews and supporters of Israel would be crazy to vote for Jackson, which I think was a fair statement to make at that point. But what was happening was that nobody realized that it wasn't Jesse Jackson the man that people were concerned about is Jesse Jackson, the symbol that people were responding to. So symbols in terms of how groups see issues of, of difference and hatred and so forth are very, very important. And the flip side of it is you have police in various different parts of the country that finally got an idea of how do you deal with uh, hate groups and communities and how do you use the sort of social psychology and group identity to say, you know, not in our town, for example, uh, the attack on the uh, Jewish uh, kids' room in Billings, Montana, when had a uh, menorah on the window and uh, a brick up through room. There's a bunch of uh, KKK activity that preceded that, and we had a guy who was a chief of police who basically understood because he had come from Portland where they had been out a skinhead murder uh, a couple years before. This is what we need to do to build a community to have everybody put up symbols like the Danes did in their windows. To push back and create this sort of group culture against hatred, so there are ways of social psychology can, can be used. Um, if I have to ever go back to college, I'm, as a instead of a political science major and social psychology, a social <laughs> Anyway, sociology how groups uh, look at each other. I mean, there's some very interesting work there too. Just to pick out one, There's a, a woman named Kathleen Blee who wrote on the difference in and Klan women, how they adopt racist attitudes versus anti-Semitic ones. And racist ones came from, you know, when you interviewed them, I was sitting on a bus back when I was a kid, and I heard this, you know, black kid did something that annoyed her. Um, and that was where they like, could trace back their racism to, at least in their own mind. With anti-Semitism, they didn't really know Jews, but it came from all of a sudden, this was a clear explanation of how the world worked, right? Ah, now I know. It's the Jews pulling this, the strings of this or that. Um, so, there's a lot in terms of sociology. Other fields, too, and I, I won't get bogged down when going through these, but political science, law, journalism, so forth. Um, education, I want to spend a couple of minutes about because I think there's a lot of, of work that hate studies can do to, to help people figure out where education works and where it doesn't. Because there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions. The tendency I've seen, especially in Jewish communities, to think that, okay, if you set up a Holocaust studies program, it's going to have something to do with pushing back on anti-Semitism. From my point of view, there's no correlation here whatsoever, either the anti-bias or the Holocaust curriculums. So and just to give you um, an example, some of the major things that have happened over the last decades. You had the World Conference Against Racism in South Africa, which was a little orgy of anti-Semitism. I would dare say that the people that attended that that came from NGOs um, probably had more Holocaust education than the norm because they took the language of it and turned it back, you know, just twisted it 180 degrees and, and accused Israel of doing all these things with that vocabulary of the Holocaust. Or if we looked at you know, how are you going to impact Arab and Muslim youth in Europe, which was correlated with the spike in anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic attacks in 2002 and so forth. You know, teaching a kid uh, who has his world identity um, influenced by, you know, his imam and satellite television and everything else. You know, we have not talked about, you know, learning about Wansi and other things, it's not going to really do much. And seeing these images of his, in his mind, of his brothers being uh, harassed and killed, the Middle East, why is, you know, why was Granny Films from 60 years ago to like Europeans going to have an impact on them? There was one study in the American anti bias and Holocaust related uh, programs to look at their impact. Okay, uh, once in Facing History we did one study of eighth graders over one year and it found that, Make it on for girls and for people that were not likely to be fighters. Yeah. Um, it may have helped or didn't help at all, depending on, on how you looked at it over that, that period of time, but for, uh, for boys that were li- and others that were likely to be fighters, uh, they actually came out more prejudiced than they went in, as was the control group. Um, there's no long-term study to show the impact of these things. And if you look at some of the studies on other things that are happening in schools, Know, say no to drugs or the anti smoking campaigns. If you look at the long term studies, five and ten years afterwards, the people that went through those programs just as likely to smoke uh, and do drugs as those who didn't go through the programs. So, you know, if there is some correlation with these programs combating bigotry and anti Semitism, there needs to be some study to show if they work, if they do, what models work, because there are all these different types of models. We need to experiment, the experiential ones to uh, ones that are text-driven, and there, there hasn't been any study to show. Just a couple more points and then I'll, I'll stop and questions. questions. One of the other reasons wh- for the importance of the endeavor of uh, hate studies is that we tend to, even experts who I, I really respect, Tend to look at things in, in isolation and get answers to, to be wrong. I'll give you a couple of examples. Gerald Post, who I admired really tremendously, is the head of uh, political psychology at, at George Washington, was talking uh, a few years ago about some of the people on the far right, uh, the skinhead, racist, daring nation type of crap. and explaining that <coughs> he like said, well, A little skepticism is healthy, but a deep Craving for enemies is a spiritual punishment. You start with alienated or unsuccessful people, fill them with mind numbing suspicions and rationalizations, and (coughs) before you know it, you've got, quote, patriotic resistors who say government is the agent of the Antichrist. Well, that's certainly true to a degree, but how does that relate to groups that do similar things? The Bin Laden's of the world, or Hezbollah, and so forth. you, know, you tend to somehow be imprisoned by what you're studying, and you're not looking at the larger picture to say what else should be included in this picture. Or there was a, a guy from Harvard a few years ago, right after Buford uh, Faro uh, shot up the JCC in L.A., um, and was making a case that there should be uh, an extreme racism classification of a mental disorder. Well, I understood what he was saying, you know, and get that nuts You go out and kill people and see little kids as the equivalents of little devils, you know, there's something nutsy about that. But the problem with having this sort of isolated, ivory tower, psychological view of the world that has no real connection to, you know, what you want to see happen. For example, if he had a concept of the legal system built into his view, what he was doing was going to be something that was going to be detrimental because... If you did classify it, then I mean, maybe people could get off and things like that, saying it's a mental disorder. So um, you wouldn't necessarily want that. Great defense to a hate crime. And how does it explain, in that type of uh, you know, view of the world, where you have these conspiracy theories driving you? 9 right after 48 percent, within three weeks, I think was the poll taken, forty-eight percent of Pakistanis, you know, thought it was uh, an inside job, um, when the Israelis did it. And so classify a whole society as having a mental disorder that doesn't quite, you know, help. Um, Some of the things I think are going to be of of concern to us as years go ahead, and that makes it even more critical to have a larger understanding of how hatred works. Um, If if you believe the projections by the year 2050, we're going to have a majority uh, of uh, non-white people in the United States. And for most of us, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, anything. Um, But for some people, it will. And we're starting to see some of the pushback on that in the immigration movement. I'm concerned, not just because I'm concerned about the potential spike in racism, but if look at countries abroad that have had to deal with uh, how to you know, uh, approach others, communities as part of theirs, um, you know, the success in France and Heidegger when it was in Austria, and the BNP's su- you know, success um, and the recent uh, election in Hungary, for example. You know, are we going to have the same sort of manifestations here of people being able to organize around that that type of fear, and is that going to create a venue for hate, or a capacity for hatred to become more normalized? And anti-Semitism certainly is an important concern in that way. Just just one little snippet of how the ideology works around immigration stuff. If you're a person that believes that. Either big time or small town, that the United States really ought to be a white country for whatever reason. And you see people that you uh, feel are inferior for one reason or another coming in and now becoming a majority. Um, and you see yourself as superior to them. How do you justify that? And that's where anti Semitism fits in because it gives people a rationale. Well, yeah, well, it's not, you know, what's happened is this various part of the Jews who have made this happen. And you're starting to see more and more of that ideology around the the immigration debate, certainly by the leadership of it. Globally, in terms of uh, the Islamists of the world, um, it's a concern in terms of uh, how we're going to see hatred play out kind of impact. Um, And what the field wants to do, ultimately, is to create a common vocabulary so that people can talk among different uh, academic fields, give it more of an integrated system uh, for research, um, and create an opportunity for a better understanding and guiding of action of all the different actors, whether it's government or private sector, um, and to really focus on applying tools that, that we have been sort of shopping for the last 20 years without any real track record of showing that they work. Again, the educational. I and mean, if you look at it from the point of going back to the the, you know, the the comparison I made to how we approach medicine, I mean, if we took something that said was a particular problem uh, in the medical sphere and said, oh, here's a pill that we're going to give you to, to cure it, but well, we actually haven't done any testing, but trust us. You know, that's, even the lawyers would say, well, that's, you know, it's so negligent, right? Uh, but that's what we do with education approach. And I, I, I see it as a critical need for being you know, a lot smarter as our resources are getting smaller and as our challenges are getting uh, larger. Um, across the board for law enforcement members as well. Um, on campuses where we've seen some manifestations, I won't we'll, you know, we'll talk about that in question, some of it's been overblown in terms of the allegations of anti-Semitism on campus, but there's certainly been some issues. And if we had this academic... Field of good studies uh, that was incorporating more and more campuses. It would actually give you the ability to have case studies on campus and people to take what they learn and apply it to what's happening in front of them, which I think would be a lot uh, more healthy way to, to approach things. Um, one final thing I'm, I'm just happy to, to share with you is that um, we're going to have a second conference on populating you know, the of Hate Studies 2011 at Gonzaga, so I'm very eager to see the, the building upon the work that's already been done, and to try to uh, create <coughs> more uh, academic programs around the country. We already have a couple of classes at Gonzaga, interdisciplinary team taught about how to understand hatred. Uh, there's a the second one that, that's, that just started up in, in their business school, and our goal is to try to get uh, different universities around the country to start adopting this model and working with us. i to see my goal is you know, ten years from now to see ten or twenty places looking at hatred holistically in this way, going together with different performing parts. And if I look parochially from my you know, my day job is dealing with issues of anti-Semitism, I can't think of anything it that's more important. And I mean there's a lot of what we do on a day-to-day basis at a national agency both reactive and proactive. Um, but again, none of it is being guided by testable theories. A lot of it is being done by experience and what we think we know. Um, and I, I, I think a lot of what we think we know is right. But we need to have the, the sharper minds in helping test and guide what not only will we as, as Jewish agencies should be doing, as the Jewish community should be doing, but what all the different actors that can have an impact on anti-Semitism, and particularly hatred in general, if uh, you know, want to leave the world, a um, little you know, more hatred than we're experiencing now. I and mean, let me stop there, I a couple more minutes.
0: I think we're going to ask two quick questions. Sure. Um, so thank you very much. It's, it's a very important subject that you're working on. And go really, I can ask you 20 questions. but I'll limit myself to two. Very briefly, and I, I know you deal with these issues, from a Jewish perspective, um, I know that anger, according to Maimonides, is the only human emotion that is completely negative. It's, there's nothing you If you're jealous, you can... There's a redeeming quality because it can spur you to do good things. If you're jealous of somebody, you can emulate them trying to do what they're doing. But anger is a completely negative emotion. What does the Jewish teachings teach us about hatred? Is there anything redeeming, in hate? That's the first question. I'll let you answer.
1: Well, you know, my wife's the rabbi, right? yeah, so, I, know, okay. <laughs> so I, I can't answer that. You know, okay. about Jewish teaching, I, I, I can tell you though, from from anger. I think there is a positive place for. I will an example. one of the you know, but I, I have a kid who's probably who's been going to go to University of Chicago next year. Really, just uh, tanked after ninth grade was, uh, he was in a very good boarding school, and we finally opened him up to understanding what was in this one my wife and I've angry at, which we had not been before, so I can point
0: to yeah. the anger as a positive thing, it's more of force Second question, <laughs> um, you spoke about conspiracy theories, yeah. and, and, and I think, and, you know, when you look at militia groups, and like mm-hmm. radical Islamists, this is a important part of the ideology and how they gain support for conspiracy theories, and I'm beginning to believe that the greatest age of radical Islam, the Iranian regime is not necessarily the nuclear weapon, but the, the sort of propagating of the protocols of the others in Zion and exporting it literally all over the world, and it's entering mainstream culture in the Middle East and now into parts of South America, South Africa. It's becoming the genies out of the bottle, and I think this is extraordinarily dangerous. How do you... Engage. I'm using Obama's term. How do you engage with a social movement that believes in conspiracy theories? How, it, when you approach them rationally, using social psychology and you know Western uh, social sciences and uh, an interdisciplinary perspective, how do you deal with a social movement that believes in conspiracy and is successfully propagating it and growing and using it?
1: And there's no easy answer to that. So no. uh, I tell you more, when I think about this whole panoply of conspiracy theories and how they use a, I always come back to a bit of graffiti I saw my freshman year at BART College at a mm-hmm. stall. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and it probably had nothing to do with, with this, but I, I saw this place that if I didn't believe it with my own mind, I never would have seen it. And what happens, I think, is that when you look at, we were talking before about the Timothy the phase of the world, when you have somebody that somehow sees, you know, oh my god, this is suppressed truth, and now I understand it. And now everything, you know, sort of works really well. It's like the Holocaust in the eyes, the ones that really put it. So then you start seeing things that you should, you know, say as well, gee, this was, and, it was. and you, you turn it around and it becomes further proof of what it is you start to believe to begin with. So it becomes a self feeding dog like you see it on the right, it's on the left, it's in the religious movements, secular movements, and so forth. The way I, I always try to define whether we should be concerned about anti-Semitism is whether it's in the mainstream. Okay? I and mean, that's partly why I was you know, taking some hits back when everybody was going crazy with Bernie Madoff stuff. You know, Anti-Semitism is going to go rampant and, and the, the economic collapse right before that. That's all. Well, if you look historically, that's, you know, there's, yeah, most we most we have, you know, milk, and we had others, and it hasn't played out that way. And here's the reason why it may not, you know, play out that way. Um, this time, people may not go down that, that particular road. So the the question is whether it becomes, well, in some places in the Middle East, it did. You know, there were all these conspiracy theories. Right going So the question is whether it, in the sort of general day-to-day thing, it's part of the explanation, or not. Um, in the you know the, the collapse of the economic uh, system, I saw much more in terms of Latinos and uh, you know other, quote unworthy minorities who got the, the subprime loans. That's what you we were seeing. Some mainstream commentators nobody was talking about Jews, right? So in these countries where it becomes just sort of normative to explain everything by the nefarious Jews. And I, I, I don't see, I, I disagree with you some in the sense that I don't think it's the protocols that are driving, the protocols are a good tool for people to, to use. But that just becomes so normative. And the question is, how do you push back against so it? I think there are a lot of different things that you know need to be done. Hannah Rosenthal has a big challenge in terms of making sure that the State Department has it as a priority. Meet with these folks, and they see this type of stuff. Uh, at least the leadership knows there's sort displeasure of about it, and why, and why that's a challenge. Um, you know, I think that there are other um, you know responsibilities, media groups, and others, but it becomes a real challenge. I don't know, you know, it so becomes so much of an avalanche of of uh, day-to-day normative discourse here that you can't just sort of flip a switch and turn it off and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I sort of hope that this field you know, comes together to may give better answers than we have at the moment. I mean, when we write something for AJC or others do it, you know, it makes us it feel good, but it doesn't have any impact. You know? How do you have an impact? I would love to see people study more on These decide how these institutions work. How can you turn around? What are the pressure points? Uh, what can they respond to? And what's a long-term strategy?
2: Yeah. I I really agree with uh, the goal that you present and the, the um, motivation for doing real um, research, not yeah. only like talking uh, about stuff. So I really agree with everything. One thing, I, I, because you mentioned um, many times social psychology mm-hmm. or, post- or psychology in general, so I think uh, it's important to compare uh, when you structure a program or, or like something really huge or, uh, in the States, so it's important to look at the way that psychology did over the years because the beginning was like in studying Really, the the bedside, I mean, ab- like a psychology and everything, and then the, the other phenomena that um, medical students and psychology students become like aware. I mean, like they imagine that they have the disorders that they study, because like we are really um, affected by the situation, and so and and then the movement that started in the 2000s was like the positive psychology movement, um, and this is really uh, like by, by Martin Seligman, saying that uh, we can make. M- a better effect if we emphasize the positive qualities of human nature. And like, So you can structure exactly the same goals, but just frame it differently, like uh, combating antisemitism or fighting racism. But if you structure something called like uh, studies of hatred, so I'm a graduate student of hatred studies, what does it do, what does it do to my mood? I mean, on everyday basis, so it's like, I think it's important to think about it because uh, this is what affects us, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Martin said, he's the head of the positive psychology uh, program in, um, Penn, in in UK. So he does amazing work I- with the army. I mean, like schools, very effective. So I think like, if, if we want to make a change, we should do it the way that it works. Uh, so, so uh, and he has results for that. And so uh, if we compare it to findings that we have for treatment uh, effectivity, like using psychodynamic therapy or other uh, uh, that really um, um, emphasize the dark side of, the, of human nature, we see that it's less effective. So we, we, we should, uh, I think, give better thought of how to frame it, uh, that it would be efficient, not only uh, important. Oh,
0: other
1: studies. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, first of all I I agree that the, the, that things that come to different academic fields tell you how to be more effective are very important to pay attention to. In terms of the framing of the the enterprise though as opposed to the looking at how um, you know, something like that you know, on an individual level. We have we have a lot of discussion about how to discuss you know, from, from from the point of view of how do you raise money for something called hate studies. And i like <laughs> what's going on with money to write? Uh, but <laughs> sort of, some practical things. But what was what was interesting is when we started talking about it, people said, "Well, oh, we're talking about peace studies. I said, well, no. We're, I'm, or how do you get people to you know, to coexist? I said, no, I you mean, know, anti-Semitism is a good example. You could have a you know, tremendous amount of hatred from places where there are no Jews. You know, so we're not necessarily talking about how do you deal with conflicts again. Um, And after everything got involved over a number of years, actually the board just voted to change the name of the Institute for hate studies. Because if you look, if you Google hate studies, it's the only thing that that appears. Or if you Google anything else that's related to it, there are tons of things. And what, what we wanted to do is not only to be sort of unique, but also really to focus on the fact that human hatred is something really difficult to and it's something very important to look at to call for what it is. Now, in terms of whether you're dealing whether you know dealing with an individual who comes out of a you know skinhead group, you want to you know get to you know to be a whole person you know back in society. Whether you get a positive image or a negative image, and that's a different thing. But in terms of what we're calling this, I think the, the board has it right there. It's an ugly thing, and we need to get the it in. Professor, I have two questions also.
3: One is, uh, I was struck by your comment that we're born with innate DNA. I right? uh, was wondering, in just of the Tutsi and Hutu. You, you didn't did say anything about DNA? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's implied. Hardwired. Yeah. I said hardwired. Hardwired is close to um, it. Uh, the Tutsi and the Hutu did not have hated for until the colonialists found it convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, Related to that is the question of uh, tribalism in Africa. Usually uh, hatred comes from some kind of envy about natural resources or something else. It isn't innate, I don't think. But you were sort of saying, well, we're born with it, somehow it has to come out, because my first question is that really your position? Yeah. The second? <laughs> oh, it's
0: very negative. It's a
3: little, it's a very negative position. I think nothing much can be done, if that's the case. It has to come out somehow. Anyway, my second question is, does your day job interfere with your vocational interest? Because it seems to me that your day job, I would think, has something to do with anti-Semitism being somewhat unique. On your vocational interest in hate is
1: doesn't make anti-Semitism unique. It's one of many interests. Well, let me answer the second one first. I don't see it as interfering. I, I see it as, as very well related because I think if you look at anti-Semitism as a subcomponent of the human history and capacity to hate, then it becomes more understandable because you talk about the unique aspects of it. Many different types of hatred have unique aspects. Um, So it gives me actually greater capacity in in this to to point out its unique characteristics. so I don't see it as a detriment at all. I see it as, as something that, that, that helps. Actually, what it does is it helps me, especially in, in let talk parochially, in Gonzaga, which is the first university to really sort of enthusiastically embrace this. It's a Jesuit university and gives me there you know, a lot of capacity to talk about anti-Semitism in a way that's probably not you know, heard of it there. So there's this sort of lefty sometimes tendency to beat up on Israel. Which you know we all have seen, uh, uh, you know, Israel can be criticized for a variety. It's a whole other talk, uh, a whole variety of things. But one, it becomes you know, outside of the way you challenge other countries and get dif- differences your differences of opinion with their policies and so forth, there's something else going on there. And these folks at Gonzaga sort of understand that better than people that may swim in the same waters as they do in sort of what the, the, the you know the Christian theological. So I, I see it as a way. It's, it's, a, it's a not only just in terms of the enterprise, but in terms of the day-to-day work as a, as, a, as a plus. In terms of the hardwiring, I, you know, I think I think the answer has to be, you know, yes. The, the, the South Pacific sort of model, that people have to be taught to hate. I think um, it presupposes that we're all sort of these angelic blank slates, and then somebody comes along and hates us. Hatred has been so. Um, manifest throughout history regardless of again, you know, where and when and so forth. I mean, sometimes worse, sometimes better, sometimes there are been divisions that are um, between one group and another that weren't seen at one point and never seen at other points. But the, it seems to me that the, the capacity to somehow see somebody else as another and then somehow, you know, demean them to uh, the point where they, Hatred, um, you know, is, is part and parcel. Of the There's some social psychology experiments, for example, which are fascinating. Take a room like this, and you know, just tell everybody we're going to, you know, coin flips or odds, and just totally random ways of selecting two groups, and then follow up with the perceptions of the people in the group about themselves and about the other group. And you know, the studies have showing the people in each group think that they're smarter, that they're you know they're better looking and so the other group, even though they all know intellectually that this is an entirely random selection. So the, the how we deal with people that we see as others, I mean, this, in some ways when we're talking about names for this, you know, maybe more precise we talk about otherism. But I don't think we can have any more success raising money for that. So, uh, so but you know, I, I think there is some way of how we deal with. This. And again, you know,
3: who we're
1: we going to end up hating and whether it's going to become something that's just annoying or genocidal. It's so a whole range of differences there. Um, but I think that it's it's all yeah. Yeah, a comment on the last point and a question related
4: to justice. another question. Um, I'm a neurobiologist and social psychologist and I don't I'd say the more current neurobiological theories about our brain and how it develops do not include any component processes built into it or hardwired into it of the nature of uh, hatred or altruism or any other psychological concept. There are other characteristics, of course, of our brain that interact developmentally with the environment that then produce certain characteristics. But those innate characteristics of the brain to start with are of a very different level, a different category, a different sort of neurobiological or some sort of basic process of interaction with the environment. Um, but they don't have in us anything as developed specifically in our co- that would match our psychological categories of, of hatred, for example, or altruism. Uh, that's sort of the way neurobiology is, is going now. Um, I think. I also think that your idea of having an interdisciplinary approach to a question like this is valuable and drawing on an academic expertise to inform um, efforts in a field like yours is also very valuable. So my question is, since you started this interdisciplinary effort, are there? can you give us a couple of examples in which the hate studies work that you're familiar with now has actually concretely informed some action or program in your day job?
1: The, well, two, two things. because I know, some interested two, in some of the concrete things right. you do in your day job, right, right, right. well, the job. yeah, two things. One, one is I'm mm-hmm. fascinated to, to talk because one of the the uh, there's a guy named uh, Ed Glazer who was a neurobiology for Journal. i I a journal of hate studies, which is online. Oh. I wrote a, I believe, but there was a piece of looked at, it. it was more, it was very interesting, it was more about what we don't know than what we do know. Uh, in, that so it, it that in terms of coming out of the, the field to, you know, to be adopted, to look at, on, um, on one level the answer is no, because it's, it's new, we started, you know, uh, the first couple of classes and we've had, Journal and the Field, the, the field. Um, On the other hand, I, I think that the answer would be yes, and be two examples. One of the things that was really fascinating to me was that there was a at this first conference in 2004, there were people that from um, a sociologist, and I forget it was a political science they were looking at similar Things, but they never really communicated outside of the field. So in terms of the, the studying of it, I, I saw some positive things of connecting people from different fields. It saw overlaps and saw things that they could use for each other in a way for, for research. So that, that was good. And for me, just being sort of around and being a gap I trying to, to, to push this is a good idea. because so I'm not an academic, by training. a is, as a trustman, mm-hmm. a lawyer and an author. Um, you know, I, I tend to, pull what I can and what I've learned from this enterprise to to in my day job. Now whether you know, whether paid studies had not existence or come to the same conclusion, you know, maybe. But what I really do look at is I try to look at systemically when we're um, making choices of what to do and what not to I don't have what I would love to have is to go to say, okay, here's what we think, here's a theory that's good to control and test it out and figure mm-hmm. out somebody else is doing something. Right, just give us a flavor sure. it? sure. the concrete actions that sure. you're committee sure. Does. Sure. You mean, um, For example, there's was a Israel apartheid group last year. Israel, Israel apartheid. You, everybody know what that is? Not? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, I'll explain this about it, six years ago, seven years ago, uh, starting in Canada. There was a group of students that put together. Uh, something called Israel apartheid, and part of what we know is trying to shoehorn the Israeli-Palestinian conflict into the the apartheid.